Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Denise Michaud, Chair of the Grown Ups Forum, and your host for tonight. We also welcome our listening audience, and we invite everyone to visit us online at commonwealthclub.org. Our program tonight is Thinking That Gets Results. And now it is my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker, Stephen Campbell. Steve's greatest love is teaching how to change the way you think. He has been a professor, author, and speaker for more than 26 years. After writing his third book, Making Your Mind Magnificent, he now conducts seminars on how we can change what we say to ourselves about ourselves. He's a member of the adjunct faculty at Sonoma State University, and he teaches a seminar there, part of which you will be hearing tonight. He also hosts a two-hour weekly radio program on Wednesday mornings, 9 to 11 Pacific Time, Making Your Mind Magnificent on KOWS 92.5 FM. Please give a warm welcome to Steve Campbell. I am so excited. This is going to be one of the more memorable evenings that you've had. So, you ready? Okay, first of all, while I am talking to you, you are talking to yourself hundreds of times faster. And your brain can do that because when I talk to you, I use words. And when you talk to yourself, you also use words. But when you talk to yourself mainly, you use pictures and feelings. So when I think of Mary, my wife, I don't think of her with words. I think of how I feel about her and how pretty she's become to me in the 47 years we've been married. So you really are talking to yourself in feelings and pictures. But here's the important point, and I'll tell you right now, this is the message I'm going to share with you. Once I say this, you can leave if you want to, but I don't think you have to. Ready? Here we go. I'll say it really slowly so you don't miss it. While you are talking to yourself, ready? Your brain is believing everything you tell it without question. Ew. That's scary. And that's wonderful. The scary part is when you say, this is just too hard. You know what your brain says? Okay. It really is. You're right. And then it actually looks for ways to make it hard. That's the scary part. Here's the wonderful part. When you say, this is so easy, what does your brain say to that? Okay. And then it becomes obsessed, obsessed with finding ways to make it easy. Now, is what you're saying true? Brain doesn't even care. And when I heard that in psychology class years ago, I was really skeptical. I think one of the best books I've ever read on this is Dr. V.S. Ramachandran's Phantoms in the Brain. Phantoms refer to phantom limbs that have been amputated. And a patient may go into a doctor's office. He'll say, doctor, you got to help me. I can't do a thing if the arm is driving me crazy. And the doctor may say, well, that could be because I amputated that arm six months ago. And the patient says, you didn't tell my brain that. My brain still thinks it's there. My brain can feel things with it. My brain can pick things up with it. It itches and aches and aches. So the brain doesn't care whether what you're saying is true or not. Now, when I look at the work of Dr. Albert Ellis, Dr. Ellis is one of the founders of cognitive psychology. He wrote A Guide to Rational Living back in the early 60s. Here's what he suggested. Ready? Here we go. This gets really exciting. <laughs> Everything we can do today is primarily based on what we say to ourselves about ourselves today. Now, did you notice I'm emphasizing the word today? Not when we were raised. Not when it happened to us years ago. Everything I can do today is primarily based on what I'm saying to myself about myself today. Now, why is that so exciting? Because you can change that right now. Is it true? Brain doesn't care. Who cares? All the brain cares about is what you tell it. You're in charge. Wow. Now, when he suggested this, psychology had a conniption fit. 
They said, no, 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 everything you are today is because of unresolved childhood conflicts. That was Freudianism, okay? That was followed by behaviorism. Remember Be a Skinner? That's why I love you guys, because you remember some of these people. <laughs> Be a Skinner is behaviorism. It's, it's all cause and effect, etc. What came after that was it's all in your genes. That didn't last too long. What came after that is environmentalism. It's in your environment, your birth order, your mom, your dad, your sister, your brother. And you know what Dr. Ellis said? He came back and he said, you know what? I think they're all correct. How could they all be correct? Because when you say it and lock on to it, your brain rewires itself, called neuroplasticity, to make it correct. So let me give you a story. For the first 42 years of my life, I said to myself, I'm really dumb in math. And guess what? I was. Couldn't do numbers. Saw numbers, freaked out. But back in the 70s, I began discovering computers and began messing around with computers on my own, eventually got a graduate degree, and began teaching computer courses. And one day, the dean came to my office at this particular university. He said, one of our math professors just quit, so next semester, you are our new math professor. (gasps) Um, I can't do that. He said, you want a job? Learn. There's the book. And so I ran down to the Roner Park Library of all places and I picked up all the books could on brain-based learning, how the brain actually learns. That's how this whole thing started back in the 70s. And I began teaching my course based on how the brain learns. And the students began saying, oh, you're such a good math teacher. <laughs> oh my gosh. And then the dean said, all the students were saying, I will only take math if Mr. Campbell's my professor. And you know what happened? I began listening to them rather than to myself. And I began saying, wait a minute. If I'm so smart with computers, I've got to be smart with math. And what did my brain say? Okay. <laughs> True. Don't care. All I care is what you tell me. And I ended up writing two college textbooks. And what do you think? Math. <laughs> Was it magical? No. Here's the point. Everything you can today is primarily based on what you are saying to yourself about yourself today. Now, why is that so exciting again? Because you can change that anytime you want to. Is it easy? Of course not. Because some of the things you've been saying to yourself, you've been saying your whole life. But as I said, when you begin doing that and you lock onto those new messages, the brain rewires itself, called neuroplasticity. And the brain isn't sitting back and saying, oh, and this is nice. It's paying attention to what you're saying. And you keep saying it. The brain rewires itself so that what you are saying becomes what you becomes a message of who you are. That exciting? That's scary? All at the same time. Now, before we get into some really neat stuff, I need to tell you how we learn. Because people say, you need to realize, Steve, I'm... I'm 70, 80, 65, 85, I'm older, I've, I've, I've been raised in this situation, that situation. I really get stuck here, I can't really learn. So let's talk about how you actually learn physiologically, okay? This is our daughter, Sarah, and this is her brain without the labels, no labels there. And this is what her brain looked like when she was three years old in terms of what she knew about a city. She was raised in Roner Park. Anyone been to Roner Park? A few, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, the closest thing to a city in Roanoke Park is the Rayleigh Shopping Center. So this is a blank slate. Sarah knew nothing. And Mary, who was an educator, said, we got to teach Sarah about the city. And I'm an I'm a academic. So I read her a book. So here's what happened. I read Sarah a book, and the brain recorded that book in the prefrontal cortex, right under here. And it created what is called a neural cluster. I'll show you a picture of one in a second. I read her another book. The brain recorded that in the same place and created another cluster. Then we t- showed her some people in San Francisco and Oakland. And then what else do we have here? We showed her buildings and some streets and some parks and some lights and some cars. And the brain's recording all this stuff during the day. This is what your brain does during the day. Now, when Sarah went to sleep that night, as what happens to you, here's what her brain does. First of all, her brain says, Ah, oh, wonderful. Leave me alone. Turn me off, because now I'm really busy. And what it does at night is it makes it takes all the stuff that's learned and it tries to find relationships. 
It tries to find connections. It tries to find similarities. In fact, we know now through positron emission tomography studies that your brain is more active when you're asleep than when you're awake. And we think this is where dreams come from. Although, talk to each psychologist, they have their own philosophy. We still haven't decided where dreams come from. That was one of Freud's first books, The Interpretation of Dreams. So we're still not sure of that. But we think this is connected to it somehow. The brain's really learning. So here's what the brain does. Here's a book about a city. Here's a book about a city. They both got people, parks, and lights. There's no connection, so it creates a connection there. See the connection? Axons, dendrites, synaptic class, etc. Here's another and another. And now what you're watching is you're watching Sarah learn. This is what your brain does at night when you go to sleep. It learns. It takes all the stuff that you've given it in your entire lifetime and tries to find connections, relationships. It's very, 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 very busy. And over time, what happens is it develops what is called a pattern of a city. Long-term memory. And now Sarah will never, ever forget what a city is. It's got people, lights, cars, etc. It's the stuff that you can remember really, really easily. Now, how many patterns can your brain carry? Okay, The patterns are based on the connections. So if we can determine how many connections your brain will carry, that will give you an idea of how many patterns you can have. So we're going to try to figure out how many connections there are here, okay? The connections are based on the number of brain cells that you have, which is around 82 billion. Okay, that's the latest study I've seen. Okay. Now, I put 100 billion because I haven't updated the slide, but trust me, it's around 82 billion. Okay. Each of those 82 billion cells are connected to an average of 10,000 other cells. Now, that's not a multiple. That's a power. So the number of connections your brain can carry is 100 billion to the power of 10,000. You know what that is? A lot. 100 billion times 100 billion, 10,000 times. Okay? It's a number we cannot even fathom. Okay? So, let's look at some uh, applications here, okay? Here's a picture of prefrontal cortex tissue. Can you see the clusters? It might be a book. It might be lights. It might be skyscrapers. There's connection there. Dr. Ramachandran says on page 8 of his book that uh, one speck of brain about the size of a grain of sand contains 100,000 neurons, 2 million axons, and 1 billion synapses in that little speck of brain. But let's begin to apply this. So far, I've given you academic psychological gobbledygook. And your brain says, this is really interesting, but I don't really care because if it doesn't apply to me, not going to do me any good. So let's begin applying it now rather than the very end, because now this is going to get you really exciting, okay? I want to show you how many patterns your brain can potentially carry. And to do this, I'm going to have you read this with me out loud. We'll start at the very top and go down to the bottom, okay? And I want every mouth moving. Ready? Here we go. The phenomenal power of the human mind. Can you read this? I couldn't believe that I could actually understand what I was reading. According to research at Cambridge University, it doesn't matter in what order the letters of a word are. The only important thing is that the first and last letter be in the right place. The rest can be a total mess, and you can still read it without a problem. This is because the human mind does not read every letter by itself, but the word as a pattern. Amazing, huh? Yeah, and I always thought spelling was important. Give yourself a hand. Now, incredible. So here's, here's the reason why I'm so glad you came tonight from wherever you drove. Here we go. The primary element that holds us back from learning and growing and changing is what we say to ourselves. It isn't how we were raised. It isn't what's happened to us. It isn't the mistakes we have made or the successes we have had, it is what you are saying about those mistakes and those successes and how you were raised. Wow. You're really in charge? Isn't that scary? You really are. Wow. 
But even though this is true, your brain takes shortcuts. Brain takes shortcuts. What does that say? Burn the bush. Does not say a burn the bush. Does not say a burn the bush. The, the, two thoughts, okay? See them there? Okay. And yet your brain said, oh, I can see this. It's so easy. There you go. Except your brain is wrong. In fact, your brain is wrong a lot. Do you know when it's wrong? Most of the, not most of the time, but when it's wrong a lot. Here we go. Ready? Your brain is wrong a lot when you're talking about yourself. Oh, I'm so stupid for doing that. When you say that, what does the brain say? Okay. But here's the scary part. If you're not aware of this, you keep calling yourself stupid. And you know what your brain's job is to do? Make you stupid. But when you switch that, which we'll learn at the very end, brain says what? Okay. True. Don't care. Isn't that exciting? I showed this to Mary years ago, and she called me a liar. And we've been married for a long time. I told her the A and the B are the same color. Okay, she said, you're crazy, you're crazy. The A is dark, the B is light. I said, she said, prove it. So I said, okay, can you see the uh, bar going down? Same color, same color A, same color B. See that? Okay, and yet when I go back, obviously the A is dark, the B is light. What does the A have that the B doesn't have? Or the B have, the A doesn't have? Shadow. So what your brain does is it makes it lighter so you can see it better. In other words, your brain's been fooling you your entire life. Don't be surprised. But once you understand what it's doing, which we'll learn tonight, you can begin calling it on its own game. Wait a minute. I've been saying for 42 years I'm dumb in math. Uh-uh. And you know what my brain said? Okay. And the more I taught math, the more fun it got. And the more exciting I got, I said, oh, my gosh, this really works. Wow. Okay, so let's look at another one. Count the letter F's in that sentence. There's seven. You skipped over the of's because the of's don't have an F sound. They got a V sound, and you were taught to read phonetically. So the brain said those, those F's don't really count. Okay, there they are. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay. So let's apply this. This is our daughter, Abby. She was born on my birthday 42 years ago, and she was born with red hair. Both of our daughters are redheads. That was a shock, too. And she was, how many, how many have children? How many have children, everyone? Okay, don't feel bad, but Abby was more beautiful than your child was. <laughs> it's so obvious. I mean, look at that. It's obvious. Okay, so Abby... So Mary's mother flew out from Michigan to see her first granddaughter. I was working in the hospital at the time. Mary called me at the hospital. She never did that, and she was hysterical, weeping, crying, and I couldn't understand. And Mary's mother is a very, very sweet person. So I, I, just, I just drove home. And Mary was uh, sitting in the living room on the couch, still crying. Mary's mother was patting her on the shoulder. I'm so sorry, dear. I'm so sorry, dear. And I sat down opposite. I said, what in the world did you tell her? And Mary's mother looked up, and she had tears in her eyes, too. She said, Steve, Abby's eyes are crossed. No, they're not. Yes, they are. No, they're not. Yes, they are. No, they're back and forth, forth and back. So we went to a doctor. What did the doctor say? Yes, they were, both of them. Strabismus in one, amblyopia in the other one. So she was 18 months. She had to have surgery. And we had to pick a little Abby and give it to the anesthesiologist. And that was a heartbreaker. And then she had to have surgery. And then she had to have her eyes patched for five years. Two eye uh, patch on the left one for two days, three days, etc. In fact, what she did is she patched her own dolls. And this is what she looks like today. Isn't she beautiful? Now, I am really smart and Mary's smarter than I am. We both have degrees up the wing-wang. Why could we not see her crossed eyes? Why couldn't we see them? It's so obvious. What's the reason, everyone? Didn't want to. Of course not. How could you possibly imagine that our daughter was cross-eyed? No, 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 no. I just can't see it. So you know what? People behave and act not according to the truth. 
But the truth is they perceive it to be. This is another one of my heroes. This is Cliff Young back in 1983. He entered the first Australian marathon, which went from Sydney to Melbourne, 885 kilometers, 545 miles. It's a five-day race. And Cliff Young showed up for this race. And he showed up in um, those are called Australian muck boots. And he, ro- and he ran in galoshes. I'm sorry, he ran in farmer galoshes things, okay? And all the reporters and clank ganged up on Cliff. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? And he said, all my life, I've worked on my farm, 2,000 acres in the outback. And I had to uh, run after sheep. We didn't have a horse. We didn't have a car. So I had to run after the sheep on foot. I mean, this is, I mean, this is a five-day race. I've run sheep for three. So he entered the race, and of course, with this kind of story, what do you think happened? He beat them all, but listen to this. 150 top runners, he beat them by a day and a half. (laughs) How did he do it? Well, when you run a race like this, you run for 18 hours and you sleep for six. Cliff didn't know that. He didn't know you're supposed to sleep. So while all the other racers were sleeping, he just kept on running, okay? That is a really inspirational story. I didn't drive down here to inspire you. You know why? Because inspiration lasts for maybe three days. And then we go back to our old ways. I'm here to help you change the way you think. So let's find out what happened the next year. The next year they had the same race. Cliff Young showed up, couldn't finish because he injured himself. Eight runners beat his record. And the year after that, and the year after that, and the year after that. And it started with Cliff Young saying, of course I can do it. And what do those other runners say? Okay, true, don't care. All I care about is what you tell me. So let's apply this to a real-life situation. I ended up teaching math at the University of San Francisco. And I'll never forget Susie. She came to my office after the first day of class, sat down on my desk opposite, and she said, Mr. Campbell, I'm so glad you're my professor because I'm a C student in math. I said, what do you mean, Sue? She said, I've never gotten above the C in a math test. I said, well, I used to be that way, so let's work together. So I worked with her. She got an A in the first midterm. And I gave her the test. I gave her the test, and she absolutely flipped out. She went, <gasps> and then she said, oh, Mr. Campbell, this is a mistake. I said, what do you mean, Sue? She said, I've never gotten above a C in a math test. You must have made a mistake. And I said, I didn't, Sue. This is a genuine A. So then she looked at it longer, and then a big smile creased over her face. Her whole face just lit up. And she looked up at me and she said, do you know what this means? And of course, now I'm getting really excited. So I sit down next to her and I say, of course I do, Sue, but I want you to tell me, what does this mean? This means, Mr. Campbell, that when I flunk the next test, I can still maintain my C. (laughs) I said, Sue, just get an A in every test. She said, oh, I can't. Why? What was her answer? I'm a C student. And we do that to ourselves all the time. I'm a C student. This is the way I was raised. These are the things that have happened to me. These are the mistakes that I've made. These are the decisions I have. This is the way I think. Or, 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 do you know when your old life ended? One second ago. Which means, when did your new life begin? One second ago. Now do the math. 60 seconds per minute, 60 minutes per hour, 24 hours per day. In one 24-hour period, you have 86,400 new opportunities for new life every single day. All you have to do is take them. Well, Steve, this sounds great, but what about your feelings? What about those? Because my feelings drive me nuts. Okay, What do I do with my feelings? Have you noticed our feelings are crazy? 
We feel stuff that we have no idea. What are we feeling those things for? Our, for our feeling or not? So let's, we want to spend the last few minutes talking about our feelings, okay? And I want to go back to the work of Dr. Albert Ellis, okay? Here's what Dr. Ellis discovered, okay? He discovered that our feelings do not come from how we were raised. And they don't come from, again, failures that we had, successes that we've had. Do you know where your feelings come from? Your feelings come from what your beliefs are about how you were raised. And your beliefs about the successes and the failures you've had. Let's be more specific. Your feelings come from what you are saying to yourself about how you were raised. And what you are saying to yourself about failures in your life and successes. Now, why is that so exciting? Because you can change what you are saying to yourself about yourself. Wow. So let me illustrate, okay? What's your name? Chuck. Chuck. Okay, let's imagine that Chuck and I have been friends for years. I show up at Chuck's house with a shovel. Hi, Chuck. Hi, Steve. How are you? How's the kids? I want to dig a hole in your backyard. Chuck says, well, I've always known Steve is kind of be weird, but okay, so I do. So I go to his backyard and start digging the hole. He's watching me dig the hole. And he begins developing some beliefs. Let me see. Um, uh, um, um, he's digging a hole. And uh, he knows it's my birthday today. And Steve also knows I love trees. Oh, that's what he's doing. He's digging a hole to plant a tree for my birthday. Oh, Steve, I love you. You're so sweet. Get Mary over here. We'll have pizza and party. Have a great time. Okay? So that's scenario number one. Scenario number two. I show up and I, I say to... I say to Chuck, uh, I'm going to dig a hole in your backyard, but this, in this scenario, we hate each other. Hate each other. Have for years. And I finally show up. And I go back to the backyard and start digging the hole. And you're already laughing. You know what's happening. You already know that his beliefs are completely different. His beliefs are that I'm digging the hole to bury him in it. Okay? <laughs> now, watch this. Ready? Same Chuck. See, I got it. I, <laughs> Same Chuck, same Steve, that one's easy, Um, same Saturday morning, same shovel, what else? Same backyard, same hole. Completely different beliefs, completely different feelings. Wow. So psychologists say that Activating events do not lead to consequential emotions. A does not lead to C. There is a B in the middle. B stands for belief. Okay? So here's some of our beliefs. We'll go through these really quickly because we're running out of time here. I must not be very smart because I'm so forgetful. Okay? Who said? Because my students will say that to me. Okay? Or I'm, I'm not as fun because I'm older. My wife used to say that to me. And I would say, who said? And I'm a failure because I have failed. And everyone says that, okay? And my reaction to that, again, is who said, okay? So we think that events such as being forgetful and being older and failing explain how we feel. Pay attention to this next slide. Rather, it's our belief about being forgetful. And it's our belief about being older. And it's our belief about failing that explains how we feel. More specifically, it is what we say to ourselves about being forgetful. Because you want to know what you're believing? Look at your self-talk. Direct relationship. Okay? What we say to ourselves about being older? And what we say to ourselves about failing that determines how we feel. So let's look at some reconsidered beliefs, okay? I may I must not be very smart because I'm so forgetful. Well, I could be tired, I'm stressed, or it's just not important to me, okay? Here's another one. I love this one. I'm not as fun because I'm older. I turned 71. I love it. It's so great being old. Why? Because when I say I forgot, you believe me. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Chuck, I'll never forget that. But that first time I forgot, and people people used to really criticize me. I can just say I'm 71. And then, oh, yeah, okay, we understand. We understand how that works, okay? Tuesday shopping gets me a 10% discount in Oliver's, okay? 
Um, I'm off to see in a crowded room. I love that. Okay. No one's hurt if I just leave a boring party. Oh, that's, that's, that's daddy. Just let him take his nap and it's wonderful. Okay. My outspokenness is now cute. Okay. And I can say no without hurting anybody. Wonderful. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. So the main thing that, that one of the main things that we say to ourselves is I'm fail, I am a failure because I have failed. Thomas Dennis was asked how it felt to fail 999 times looking for the film of a light bulb. He said it did not fail 999 times. I simply found 999 ways that didn't work. That's how you succeed. By failing a lot. And you read the biographies and they all failed miserably. So what do you do with your feelings? Okay, 2018 was an amazing year for me. I discovered at the beginning of the year that I had cancer, cataracts, and diabetes. And at the end of the year, I discovered I have advanced heart disease. Okay, For the cancer, they excise a two-inch patch from my scalp, and I'm cancer-free. For the cataracts, they replace them with uh, corrective lenses in my eyes, so now I don't really need these glasses I see you just as well, but I'm so used to wearing glasses, I just can't imagine my life without them. <laughs> and number th- what was number three, uh, the diabetes, I've had a complaint, they changed my lifestyle, I've, I've lost 30 pounds, okay? For the cancer, for the for heart disease, I had open heart surgery last month, okay? Here's the point, though. Ready? My feelings did not come from the cancer or the cataracts. You know where they came from? from what I was saying to myself about the cancer and the cataracts. So you have people who get sick and they just defend, they just fall to pieces. Did the sickness do that? No. It's what they said to themselves up here. Wow. Okay. Now, let's begin to close. When I wrote my book, the original title was Making Your Mind Your Mentor. Okay, I like my title best. They changed it to Making Your Mind Magnificent. That's all right, but I like my title. My publisher said, nobody knows what a mentor is, Steve, so they changed it. But but I think it was cool. Okay? Okay, so um, if I stopped here and said, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. I really appreciate your being here and taking your time. You would leave and you'd say, oh, the guy was so funny. He was great. He was handsome. Got to get it in there. What did he say? I have no idea. Something about the brain. Was really good. Okay, here's the reason: all the information is over here on the left side of your brain. It's all academic stuff. It's all interesting. But what we need to do is get it on the right side of your brain, where your feelings are, your creativity. That's where we need to get it. So we're going to spend the last five minutes and talk about how you can get that stuff from the left to the right, and then we'll open you up for questions. Okay? Okay. I'm going to give you three new ways of thinking. And the first one is look at yourself talk. Look at what you are saying to yourself about yourself. Open heart surgery is when they saw your sternum in two, open up your chest, attach you to a heart-lung machine, turn off your heart, Surgeon goes in there and does the repair. They turn your heart back on, and there you go. The first day, you're in ICU. The second day, when everything is cool, they take you to the cardiac unit. You still have tubes going in and out of you in all sorts of different places, okay? But that night, the second day of surgery, my RN came in. He said, okay, we're going to go for a walk. I looked at him, and his tarantulas were coming out of his eyes. I just had a five-hour surgery the day before. Are you crazy? And he said, no, we're going to go for a walk. He smiled, sat me up, put my feet to the side of the bed, got me some slippers, got a walker, and he said, you're going to do it. 
Up to that point, I had been saying, I want to be cozy. I want to lie in bed. I was still coming down from the anesthesia, so I was as high as a kite can fly. So I was a happy camper, okay? (laughs) Why would I want to go up and walk? Why in the world would I want to do that? It's so easy to stay in bed and be comfy. But my RN said, you can do this. And what did my brain say? Okay, yes, you can. Now, this is what's so needed. When I put my feet on the ground in room 2119B of the Cardiac Care Center in downtown San Francisco, something magical happened. My legs stiffened up, and then my body stiffened up. And I took one step. I can do this. So I took another and another, and before I know it, I was walking down to the nurse's station and back. A couple of days later, when I walked up eight stairs, they said, now you can go home. Now, here's the point. It is so easy to get comfortable and to be comfy. And I could have been. But my dear friends, that's not where the growth is. The growth is when you get up and start moving. And I don't care how old you are or young you are. You begin to grow by moving. And your brain says what? Okay. True. Don't care. Okay? Number two, study from Stanford University in 1975 called The Effort Effect. What they discovered is that most of us pass over our successes. We just pass them over. So when someone says, good job, do you know what we say? Oh, not really. Oh, that's embarrassing. That's egotistical. Thank you very much, but I could have done better. I was part of a team. Not really. No, I, you know, really? No, oh, no, 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 no. Okay, what have we learned this evening? When you say, no, 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 what is your brain going to say? No, no, no. And those compliments fall to the floor. Which is not only sad, but what a waste. So here's your new way of thinking. When someone says, good job, you look at them and you say, thanks, I know. Now, I gave an all-day seminar down at Kaiser a number of years ago. It was about 600 Kaiser doctors and department staff. And when I said thanks and no, the whole barroom just roared with laughter. But they loved me. They loved me. They bought my book. They signed up, they signed up for my all-day seminar, which is now online. It was so exciting. When I was driving back to the freeway to LAX, I was so excited, I almost drove out the freeway. So I said, okay, settle down. So I stopped the Chevron, got a tuna salmon to cook. When the car was gassing up, nobody saw me do this because I was alone in the car. The car was gassing up. I looked at myself in the, in the passenger mirror and I said to myself, I said, oh, you are the most amazing speaker. <laughs> you really are. And what did my brain say? Okay. And do you know what happened? I got better and better and better because I kept saying that to myself. Now, I have a question. Who said that we have to wait for someone else to tell us how amazing we are? Who in the world said that? Who knows? So here's your new way of thinking, okay? From now on, when you do something just good or well or better than the last time, when you go to bed, you think about your day and then you wallow in your success like a pig in slop. <laughs> I mean, you wallow in it. And what's your brain's going to say? Okay, true, don't care. Can you see how much control you have and yet many of us don't take it because it's scary but you take it the first time and the second time and then you begin saying hey this is really fun this is really something so number one watch yourself talk 
watch what you are saying to yourself. Number two, wallow in your success like a pig in slop. And number three, and we'll close with this, throw away the list. What's the list? The list is when you make those big bonehead mistakes and you say to yourself, oh my gosh, how could I have been so stupid? And when you ask that question, your brain sits up and says, oh, I know. (laughs) Remember that dumb thing you did yesterday? That dumb thing you did a week ago, a month ago, a year ago? Remember how you were the slowest reader in the third grade? That's what I said to myself. And you know what we do is we get out this list. And we start going down the list of all the dumb things we've ever done. Now, this is what I'm here tonight to tell you. And I get really teary-eyed. Well, I used to. I'm really under control now, so I don't as much. But I might. Anyway, here we go. Ready? The list. You don't have to do that anymore. Starting when? Now. So what do you do instead, Steve? Well, number one, throw away the list. Okay? When you were adolescence, you did need that list, but you don't need it anymore. Throw it away. Number two, use three wonderful words. You know what the words are? The next time. The next time I'll do it this way. And that way. And when you say the next time, you're saying three things. Number one, you're saying there is a next time. How many next times do we get? How many, everyone? (gasps) Isn't that wonderful? There's no limit. Wow. That is so neat. I think that's one of the most wonderful gifts that God gave us. That you have as many next times as you want. Number two, when you say the next time, what you're really saying is, I will never give up, ever. And the best for last. Number three, when you say the next time, what you're really saying is, you know what? I'm still learning. I'm still growing and I'm still changing. I'm I'm still making mistakes and I'm failing. Do you remember what I said a few minutes ago? Just because we fail doesn't mean I'm a failure. And it's all a process. When our little girl took her first step, she fell flat on the carpet, looked up, and she said, Well, Dad, Mom, I guess I've never meant for walking. <laughs> Is that what she said? Of course not. <laughs> she got up, she took two steps, and then she fell. Three steps, and then she's 42. Is she still falling? Yes. How do I know? Because she's still walking. And you don't fall unless you walk. One last story, and then we'll open up for questions. I was on my way to where I was teaching one morning, waiting to get on 101. It was on Yolanda in Santa Rosa. And uh, a kid came up in a very, very fancy car. I had my little Toyota. And uh, he looked at me. I looked at him. I knew what was going to happen. And as soon as the light changed, he went peeling out in front of me roaring up the freeway north, passing everyone. And as I watched this whole scenario, I had an epiphany. How many cars are already in front of him? Millions. How many cars are behind him? Millions. So maybe it's not a matter of how fast you get there. Maybe it's a matter of you're going in the right direction. But you know what? Even when we go in the right direction, sometimes we just run out of gas. Sometimes we get a flat tire. Sometimes we even lose our way. But you know what? You can buy some more gas. You can replace the tire. You can get a map. And this whole time, what's your brain saying? Oh, okay. Is it true? Don't care. All I care about is what you tell me. You say it, I believe it. You lock on to it, you know what I will do. I will do everything I can to make it true in your life. Wow.
What a joy. Thank you so much. We'd like to remind our listening audience that this is a program with the Commonwealth Club of California, and you are listening to Thinking That Gets Results with Stephen Campbell. I'm Denise Michaud, chair of the club's grown-ups forum, and I'll be moderating today's um, question-answer period. I think we'll probably have a lot of questions. So who has a question for Steve? So how do you reconcile the issue with, if I just tell myself it's true, my brain's going to say, I don't care, it's true, with facts where you convince yourself, and this somehow happens maybe with some uh, some very high uh, people, sure. where they just say something, and they might even believe it's true because they said it, but it really isn't mm-hmm. true, but they've convinced themselves it's true. Okay, that's called the realistic test. Here's It's called the, the realistic test. Some, like, I can fly to the moon and things like this that are so wild. If you can see your, if you can actually see yourself doing it, then it's realistic. If you can't, then it probably isn't. That's a little test, okay? So I love to say I'll be a millionaire, but I'm never going to be because that's not important to me. What I can see myself is sharing this with millions. I don't know how, but that's sort of another 20 years, and that's what I'm praying for. Yeah, but it has to be realistic. Your brain's not stupid, okay? Yeah. Uh, thank you for your sure. talk. It's really helpful. Sure. Um, I have a question specific to the self-talk. Um, I found meditation to be the way into seeing the self-talk. And do you have any other tips for the way in? Meditation, prayer, um, they all work. They're all sort of looking at it from the same side. But what you're doing is you're you're locking on to new ways of seeing yourself and thinking. And your brain is rewiring itself, whether it's meditation or prayer both of those work. Absolutely. Yeah. Not that I can think of. I'm sure there are. In fact, if we went around the room, the people were raising their hand, but those two, those are the ones that I, li- I like to use. Yeah. Uh, Steve, thank you so much for a very captivating sure. talk. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit on the health aspect of thinking positive? Let's say you give, give an example of cancer. I mean, there have been documented evidence that uh, yes, thinking there's has a lot more. of documents in my book, documented evidence that thinking positive enables you to help be health to recover better. Uh, being a positive thinker helps you to recover from cancer better, from strokes better. It just there's a relationship there. If I lie, and I know it's a lie, perspiration shows up on my hand. If I'm attached to a lie detector machine, I short the machine out. That's how lie detectors machines work. Okay, What we are thinking is so connected with our body. So when they said to, you, to me, you have a mitral valve that's pumping half your blood in the wrong direction. Okay, And either we repair it or you're going to have a heart attack like your sister who died last year. Okay, It was scary at first, but I said this is going to be the best thing that ever happened to me. And as I look back at the surgery, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but I wouldn't trade it for the world because you come out of that a different person, a different person. I've been praying for years and years that when people would talk to me, I get tired of people talking to me and have this mental clock saying, get it over so I can do something else. Drove me. I hated that part of me. After the surgery, I had a friend who, while I was in surgery, he had a stroke in Florida. So he came back to visit us, and I spent two hours holding his hand. And I noticed that I never got the clock out. And that happens on all sorts of different ways. Hi, we're living in a society with a lot of sarcasm, self-deprecation, a lot of like putting oneself down as a way that you find empathy and build connections with people. Can you talk about how we can start to change that? We live in a broken world, and we're broken people. And I'm not going to get into politics because I'm not a political person. When we get around people who are negative, you know what we need to do? We need to get away from them. We need to say, okay, this isn't a good fit for me because I'm changing what I'm saying to myself about myself. And your brain, and I forgot to tell you this, your brain hates change. It doesn't like change. It doesn't want you to change. It wants to keep you safe right where you are because when you change... 
that's scary because what if it doesn't work? And there's risks, okay? So rather than change, what I help people do is to create, create new self-images. So we have all these self-images, and we don't have time to get into this, but we have some, we want to change our self-images. They're really hard to change, okay? And you can't get rid of them unless you want to have a lobotomy. So what I teach people to do is to create brand new ones by simply changing what you're saying to yourself. And what does your brain say? Okay, true, don't care. And you lock on to it, and you decide to make it the primary message, it becomes the way you think, and then who you are. Wow. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed your presentation very much, and it really reminds me of a book I read in the 60s called uh, Psycho-Cybernetic. Oh, that's where it came from. Did you ever hear about psychosomatic? I should be Maxwell Maltz. <laughs> Amazing. He was, Maxwell Maltz was a, uh, um, he was a plastic surgeon who specialized in facial reconstruction. Here's what happened. A woman would come in who had been burned or injured for a long time, and so he would do the surgery, and he was completely perfect, and it was completely successful. He would give her the mirror, and she would burst out and cry, and she'd say, see, I told you it wouldn't work. And this happened over and over and over and over. Till he realized they weren't really looking at themselves. They're looking at their self-talk. They're looking at what they have said themselves about themselves over and over and over. So part of his, his therapy became psycho-cybernetics, where he said they need to switch to what they see um, themselves up here. Thank you for that. Well, but you know what? I'd just like to say that yeah. what I learned from that book is it's not the facts in life that matter. It's your attitude Bingo. about the facts. Bingo. It's what your beliefs about the facts. It's what you say about the facts. And that's so scary and wonderful. Exactly. Both. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I always like to bring him up, but I never have time. Um, yeah. So it's all good and fine if the people in this room, for example, believe in these principles you're talking about. But what about people who have negative beliefs already and therefore these negative beliefs are kind of guarding them against believing in like, positive Like changes. you're stupid in math for 42 years and you can't do numbers and absolutely you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. That's what I was. In fact, my brain and I hated each other for the first 42 years. I committed, I tried to commit suicide at least once when I was eight. And so I was the most negative person you ever saw. And then that happened when, when uh, I realized, my God, I can teach math. And I began doing other things, and I began doing other things, and I learned what I need to do is lock on to the stuff that I can do rather than the negative stuff. It was a decision I had to make. Was it easy? Of course not. It took years. It took years. But over time, I found myself locking on to the positive stuff. And there's a, lot, there's a wonderful book called Learned Optimism, by Dr. Martin E.P. Seligman. And I'd recommend that if you want to read it. I use it in my own book. He talks exactly about that, that when you're negative, he talks about getting into that and learning to be optimistic. Martin E.P. Seligman, just look it up, okay? Before we close, Steve, can you uh, let our listening audience know how to contact you for your book or your seminars? My website is stephenrcampbell.com. And my email address is stevenc at sbcglobal.net. Thanks. Our thanks to Stephen Campbell for his comments here today. We also thank our audience here as well as those listening to the recording. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California commemorating its 116th year of enlightened discussion is adjourned.